Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Archaeotech Podcast, episode 163. I'm your host, Chris Webster, with my co-host, Paul Zimmerman. Today we talk about maker culture. That's all things 3D, robots, drones, and computers. Let's get to it. All right. Welcome to the show, everybody. Paul, how's it going? It is going all right. I'm still unemployed, which is, you know, a little jarring, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I am keeping myself very busy. I mean, uh, I've been doing a lot of work for you with GIS stuff, which has been a lot of fun, yep. actually. You know, it was good to be able to step up into that role for a little bit here. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I'm keeping busy with uh, stuff from the school that I used to work at, uh, helping them with some programs. Something blew up and I'm like, oh, it blew up two years ago. I had a script that we could work around with that. So I had to train the new guy in on how, you know, how to use this cheap haps, cheap hack script that I wrote. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm keeping busy with a variety of different things. How are you doing, Chris? And where are you? Yeah, the eternal question, right? So we mm-hmm. are currently in Coburg, Oregon, which nobody knows where that is, but it's right outside of Eugene, Oregon, which a lot of people know where that's at. One of the big maintenance facilities for our brand of RV. Now, there's lots of RV technicians around, but one of the big like factory maintenance facilities is right here in Coburg, Oregon. The other one is in Elkhart, Indiana, which is like the home of motorhomes in the in the United States. And we just had some, you know, when you live in a space like this, there's always things that just build up. And we've had some things that weren't critical, but were needed to be dealt with. And we wanted the pros to do it. And we just happened to be coming down from Washington. And I knew this was going to be our schedule. So I actually booked this appointment about two months ago because it's really difficult to, yeah, it's difficult to get in here. And I knew we were going to be coming through here around this time. And then we're heading down to Reno for the Reno Air Races, which I always work with my Civil Air Patrol Squadron. And then hopefully a little bit of vacation if, you know, all is still well. Our vacation is in South Lake Tahoe, which nearly burned down and was evacuated last week, but Oof. everybody's been let back in. So I think it's going to be okay. It might be a little smoky, but, you know, we'll just stay in the house. It's a nice big house. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just be happy to not be having client meetings, to be honest. I don't care where I'm at. So oh, good. Yeah. A little downtime. There you go. There you go. So today's topic, uh, it's just called maker culture. And... Honestly, Paul and I have a, a, we use Trello to organize everything and we just have a board of episode ideas where things are just kind of scribbled down as they come to us that we may turn into future episode topics. And I was actually looking through it. We didn't have anything for today, you know, specifically planned out last week. So I was looking through stuff and I saw this one and I saw, Paul, I saw your, your quick thoughts on what this would be. And I kind of ran with it and set up some segments and started getting some links and taking some notes. We don't often have a ton of links for this podcast, but I've got like nine links in there right now. So a lot of good stuff to check out. Yeah, no, I was glad that um, when you first brought me on as a co-host on this podcast, I, uh, I, you gave me access to the Trello and I put a whole bunch of cards with just little like one sentence, two sentence 
you know, off the top of my head, what might be a good topic? And so maker culture, I didn't even know what I wanted to discuss about it. But at the time, STEM, STEAM, maker spaces, Raspberry Pis, all this stuff was really current. I was like, is this, you know, is this kind of, to me, exciting subculture in the US, is this going to uh, have any direct impact on archaeology? I put it in there just, you know, maybe we could explore it, maybe we could have a conversation about it. And then as you were going back through these, you came at me with a, hey, 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 which is exactly, (laughs) (laughs) I think, what I was initially intending. I just wanted to be a pretty kind of open-ended discussion, maybe some good examples if we had any, but to see yeah, uh, how these tools and techniques and programming languages and whatever else people are uh, are gravitating toward. And, you know, now it's a couple of years gone from when I first put that down and uh, things have changed. But I think it's still a valid question to explore. Yeah. Been a couple of years. Trello records everything that you do in the activity log. And you <laughs> I didn't think about it until you said you you added this a while ago. You added this card on August 24th, 2017. That was almost exactly yeah. four years ago. <laughs> that's crazy (laughs) yeah i mean like i said it was part of that initial big brain dump i think i put about 20 cards in there just as uh as stub ideas for uh for future episodes and i did that because i don't know if you recall but when you first had me on you interviewed me and we had the interview actually as one of the episodes and Mm -hmm. i said that i for a number of years had been wanting to start a podcast with one of my old friends from my grad student student days and that never took off, but <laughs> it did mean I had this whole list of different, you know, half-baked ideas. And this was one of them, I think. Nice. Well, I have got what the 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 quick ideas that you put together, I kind of broke those up into three segments. And segment mm-hmm. one, we're going to talk about basically 3D scanning and printing. Segment two will be all about robots and drones. Take a drink. And uh, for segment two, you might want to just go get the bottle. So... <laughs> you might uh, want to dilute it with a lot of water. <laughs> yeah, make sure you're not driving while you're listening to this episode. And then segment three is kind of a, we'll get to segment three, but but Paul titled it, oh, I titled it actually based on stuff, art, experimentation, and whimsy. So we will we will dive into the recesses of Paul's mind for, for that one and what you were thinking on oh, that. I see I'm some sorry. good notes in here. I know, right? So let's jump into 3D scanning and printing. And one of the things, every anytime I think of 3D scanning and printing and and who's doing stuff with this space, and it might just be because I follow him on Instagram. I've seen the, the person who runs this outfit many times at conferences. His name is Bernard and the Virtual Curation Laboratory at Virginia Commonwealth University. And... First off, their Instagram is fantastic because they put a lot of cool 3D printed things up there. But not only do they scan stuff in 3D and, and they get called out to scan things from clients, essentially. You know, they get hired out to do this stuff and, and then produce replicas. And he's got a whole bunch of uh, students that are there working in the lab and they sand down the artifacts and then they, you know, they primer it and they, they paint it and they, they try to make these things look a lot like as close as possible to the original artifact. And they just do a, such a good job. You scared me for a moment when you said they send down the artifacts. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> Oops, not the actual, the replica artifacts. <laughs> oh, there we go. Okay. There you go. There we go. Yeah. And, and the other thing that I actually kind of recently discovered, because I've just followed him on socials, is uh, 
their website, I mean, it's a blog-based website, but they've got like step-by-step instructions on how to do that on your own. They often put up blueprints for if you want to 3D print something that they've already scanned, they'll put up the uh, the print for it and you can just download mm-hmm. that and print it yourself. And then they'll give you step-by-step instructions on how to prepare it and paint it and you know finish it and, and make it look good. So it's just a, a really well-done outfit for not only getting something done, but using that opportunity to teach other people how to do it. Yeah, no, that's a, uh, it's a great resource. I love projects like this and we're seeing it more and more that they, you know, they're experimenting. I guess that gets into this maker culture bit. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then turning around and explaining what worked, what didn't work, uh, how you can replicate things on your own. And a lot of the links that you chase down for this episode are are in the same vein, you know? So I think that that kind of gets to the heart of what I was thinking of when I was saying maker culture and culture is a terrible term for it, but uh, it's floated (laughs) around like that, that this experimentation and sharing of one's successes and failures that, that, that I think is cool. It is super cool. And, you know, for anybody kind of unaware of how 3D scanning works, because you have to typically scan something in three dimensions before you can print something in three dimensions, uh, because printing in three dimensions requires it requires a distinct shape and you can make shapes in different applications like Tinkercad. That's a free one. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a number of ones I've used Tinkercad and it's actually pretty easy to learn how to use Tinkercad. And then you can oh, yeah. export we do that. Kids yeah. at school. Oh yeah. Yeah. Tinkercad is super fun and they've got a lot of stuff that you can just kind of start with too and, and pull in and shapes and all kinds of stuff and learning how to add shapes together and, and adding one shape to another in order to, like remove something, you know, the absence mm-hmm. of something using a shape, like, like making a, a donut style sphere, you know, you create the sphere first and then put a rod through it and then make the rod a negative space and then just remove yep. that from the spear, you know, something like that. But it's really cool. It's really neat. I, I actually, when we first got a 3d printer that we had use of at my coworking space a few years ago, uh, I took the archaeology podcast network logo and brought it into Tinkercad and made it three dimensions and then printed up like a, like a, plastic coaster basically <laughs> that was the mm-hmm. APN logo it makes you think about certain things like you know on the and the APN logo the letters aren't technically connected right if you just look at the logo and you can't mm-hmm. print like that so i ended up printing something that was solid with the letters taking out of taken out of the solid you know so holes mm-hmm. where the letters are rather than the letters themselves otherwise you got to connect them in some way and uh, the logo just doesn't work out that way but it makes you think about stuff like that so that's it's funny a when i um, fun exercise yeah when i first got my 3d printer last year one of the things i did was i took this uh, little design that i've turned into a sticker and I put everywhere for my kind of like personal branding and printed it out. I had the same thing. I, I made a coaster <laughs> and then rather than, uh, and the, the, the design itself is etched down into it. It's not actually etched because it's, um, because it's, uh, printed. So it's, it's just the negative space where it would be if it was carved out. But, uh, yeah, it's funny. Maybe that's a rite of passage when you get one of these <laughs> 3d printers in your hands. Yeah. Who knows? Right. So, 3D scanning and printing is becoming more of, of a useful tool. And I think when I think of it in the context of CRM and in the context of the type of archaeology that we do in the West, and Paul, you were on one of these projects with us over the summer. Mm-hmm. The way I think about this, and I, I'm curious at your take on this now that you were out there, yeah. is there a comfortable way 
do you think um, anything you've seen? I know we're not we're not three D scanning aficionados here, but we we've seen a few things. But I wonder if it would be feasible to take out into the field one of those handheld three D scanners that's battery powered and scan mm-hmm. the artifacts that we leave in place. If that would even if that would just take too much time, or if that would be a thing that we could do, you know. Yeah, I think it would depend really on the resolution of it. And that's something I yeah. don't know. I mean, those those handheld scanners run into big bucks, you know, $10,000 really sure. quickly. Interesting that you'd ask this, though. The things that I was most interested in, that I would most like to like still be able to look at and turn around, are things like um, we found certain uh, can lids that were embossed. <laughs> Right? Yeah, And we could barely see what the design was. But I know that if yep. I knew what those cans were, I'd be able to figure it out in, in short order. Well, now they're still sitting on the back of a mountain, uh, you know, in Nevada. But if I had a 3D scan that was sufficiently detailed, I could play mm-hmm. with that some, maybe do some RTI with it to try to figure out what that embossed design was. You know, that, that would be cool. Yeah. So that would be something that I'd want to see, but it's entirely dependent on, uh, on the resolution. Uh, but it's interesting that you'd go this way because- uh, there was a um, the RPA had a uh, had a grant uh, open for equipment for a thousand dollars, ten different uh, thousand one single one thousand hmm. dollar grants. Uh, so I applied at the IAIS museum where I um, where I volunteer. Just got email yesterday that uh, we didn't win the grant. So, <laughs> but uh, I was looking into it because Paul Wegner uh, was asking me to you know experiment with some photogrammetry because mm-hmm. we have at the museum a whole lot of things from old excavations that were just deposited there and have never been properly analyzed. Not, not so much as cataloged. I mean, it's, it's on the paper that's on the box that's in storage, but it's from 78 or 77 or something yeah. like that, you know? And so nobody has ever really looked at them. And because not everybody that would be working on these things can be co-located, uh, he was like, well, if we could get sufficiently detailed 3D scans of these things quickly, we could then, you know, allow our researchers dispersed to uh, to take a look at them and to at least do basic yeah. measurements. And so I looked into it and, you know, for the grant I'd written up, we needed some more photography equipment because the, uh, the, there isn't any really good photo setup. And I wanted to do that because I love photography, but that only accounts for a couple hundred bucks, you know, good backdrop and good lights. And I was looking at handheld scanners. And again, most of them are way expensive, uh, Mm $8,000 plus. But there is a certain class of these ones that are sub $1,000 now. And I looked at a whole bunch of them and saw different reviews. And one, I'm going to put a link into it. I was hoping to get it to find out if it's any good at all. It's called the RevoPoint Pop, and it's about $550 handheld scanner. And I thought that that would work nicely, you know, put an object on a uh, turntable, spend a few minutes and have it scan things. The uh, the examples I've seen both from the company and from other people's reviews of the product um, are really promising. Uh, so maybe yeah. we might be at the cusp. Uh, th- this particular one was interesting too because the other ones were tied to either to very expensive photogrammetry software or very proprietary stuff that only ran on Windows mm. with uh, you know a very good GPU. Sure. But this one had even applications to run on iOS. So you could connect the scanner to your iPhone and do that, you know, record nice. it right there, which would then work in that case that you were suggesting going out into the field with these things. Yeah. Unfortunately, we didn't win the grant. And uh, so I'm not going to be able to tell you if this product is really any good or not. But my phone, yo, you remember all the trouble I was having with my phone in the field, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it finally died. <laughs> like dead, dead, dead. <laughs> so as of today, I have an iPhone 12, which I know the 13s Ooh. are coming out imminently. Um, yeah. But so maybe I'll play with the light, some of those LiDAR scanning apps on this to see what kind of detail I can get. But I'm wondering, you know, with all the, the availability of the 3D models that I see on places like um, like Sketchfab, how are people doing those, you know? Uh, it does, is everybody sprung for these expensive scanners or is there, you know, or are they doing a lot of just structure from motion work and taking a zillion photographs or is it a combination or is there something that I just didn't look while I was, you know, didn't find while I was doing my research? Well, I, I personally think that a lot of the stuff that's getting done right now are getting done in an academic setting. And, hmm. you know, when you're in an academic setting and you add a $20,000 scanner to your grant proposal, you know, or, or yeah. the university's already got one for some other reason. You know, yeah, I think a lot of the engineering is, department. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, and, and a lot of universities have, you know, really good like maker spaces and stuff like that, that, that have mm. a lot of equipment like this these days. So I think we get a skewed impression of how easy it is to do this stuff because we see those people putting stuff out like that. And we're like, Oh, that looks great. I want to do it. And you're like, Oh my God, that's going to be $20,000. So yeah. yeah. And then as we're wrapping up this segment here, one of the last things I was thinking about as far as field scanning goes is lighting is always an issue, right? Mm -hmm. If you're using photogrammetry, then you could probably put it on a background, twirl it around a few times, take some pictures. And the good lighting is, is actually an issue, a thing that you need, but in some cases, you might actually have to shade it and have uh, or, or put it inside something where it can maybe spin with its own light internally or something like that. But then, you know, taking that into the field, I just don't think it's ready. So right. let's go just a hair long on this because we've got some links to check out that we're not really going to get to talk about, but I'm going to leave them in the show notes anyway. But two other things that I thought were really interesting, some some papers that we saw using GIS plus 3D scanning for landscape mm -hmm. archaeology. So landscape scale kind of stuff. And really getting into immersing yourself and being able to manipulate the landscape in a way that, you know, a flat map just simply can't do. And right. that's pretty cool. Um, and then the other one is immersive VR, of course. That's kind of like the, the dream and the gold standard is to be able to replicate and then walk into a, an environment that no longer exists, uh, whether it's a prehistoric, ancient or yesterday, you know, I mean, who knows, but being able to recreate that and get into the archaeological site rather than just look at notes, a map or a sketch map or something like that. So that's that's where it would be great to be. So yeah. anyway, some good articles about that stuff. Uh, take a look at the show notes again. I'll structure them so you can find them by section and then, you know, take a look at those links. So, all right, well, let's wrap up this segment and we'll give you just a couple of minutes here while we have some uh, advertisements from, you know, just us probably. And if you don't hear anything from any of our sponsors, then we have sponsor space open. <laughs> They're dynamic. <laughs> so I don't know what's going to be in there, but uh, it depends on when you download this episode. But the next segment is robots and drones. So Go get your supplies back in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code Archaeotech. That's A-R-C-H-A-E-O-T-E-C-H. 
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode 163. And we are talking about all kinds of things in the maker and, I guess, experimental culture of archaeology. And it really just the culture in general as it's applied to archaeology. So this next one I'm pretty excited about. Robots and drones. Now, drones we've talked about extensively on this show, and they always come up in different spaces. So we're actually, I mean, by the notes I've got, I don't think we're going to spend like a ton of time on your standard drone applications because I kind of feel like everybody's talking about drones. But I do want to talk about robots. And this first one, well, first off, robots in the sense that they're not even necessarily autonomous, but they're things that are doing stuff that a human either can't or would be dangerous for a human to do. And I mean, in that sense, a drone is a robot. I mean, come on. I mean, realistically. So, yeah, I can't fly. Y- yeah, exactly. I can't fly either. I can, but I can't stick to landing. So, <laughs> <laughs> So robots are cool in in a lot of cases because depending on what you're talking about, they're generally non-destructive because they can go into places without excavation, which we're going to talk about in a minute here. They can go Mm -hmm. where it's too dangerous for humans to go. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to go inside of a mine shaft or an adit because I just want to know what the network down there looks like, especially after it's been left to decay on its own. I think that would just be fascinating. Like what what does a mine shaft look like after 100 years of just being left to its own devices? But there's no way a human could ever go in there. Like, it's just too dangerous. Not only are there things that could fall on you or crush you, or you could step on a, you know, uh, a cover, an uh, opening, uh, another shaft if you're walking through an attic, which is uh, more horizontal. You could be walking through that and then step on a vent shaft that was that was sealed over with wood or something like that, which is now decayed, and then fall a thousand feet to your death. So... You know, that would suck. And if none of that happens, more than likely the chemical outgassing that's in there is going to kill you uh, either way. So it's just um, too dangerous to do. Yeah, no, um, robots. I mean, obviously, we've used robots in a lot of different ways for a long time in manufacturing, you know, since the 70s at least. Um, But where this intersects, where it, it comes into this whole maker culture idea is that, you know, starting with probably like Lego Mindstorms. Mm hmm. And, but definitely accelerating with all these different like robot soccer games and whatnot. Uh, it, it's become accessible that, you know, high school kids yeah. build robots as part of their school classes sometimes. You know, they, <laughs> they enter them in competitions. They learn how to have them do different tasks. Actually, why am I saying high school kids? I mean, I've seen uh, grade school kids you know, go to robot camp in the summer sure. to, to learn how to program something to follow a line or to do whatever. 
And that's where I think this is exciting. And that's where the, the whole maker bit of it is it's the availability of all these different things that used to be high end and very expensive are suddenly coming within grasp. And that, that, that's where the excitement for me is with this is that, you know, somebody that likes to tinker and likes to try to invent things, uh, it's, it's right there. You, you could, you know, you've got the tools in, in front of you. If you just have the time and the idea and the ability to, to procure these things, which isn't, you know, tens of thousands of dollars now, but in the range of tens or hundreds of dollars, uh, you can do something new and cool. And so, yeah, these robots, geez, a mine shaft. I didn't think of that, though. Most of the examples <laughs> I think of kind of a similar form factor. Mm -hmm. Do you remember when they were looking to use robots to go into the uh, Great Pyramids at Giza? Yeah. Yeah, I think they've yeah. done it in some cases, haven't they? I don't remember. I think that they were yeah. trying and they kept on having troubles, but I don't know how deep they could go. And I think part of that was restricted to the uh, the, the mm. radio signals that they could get back out. I, I really, sure. I'm just talking off the top of my head here. So I, it's a vague memory, but it seems to me like, you know, if the robot isn't a big expensive thing, but something that you whip together, you send a bunch of them out, <laughs> you know, you yeah. try it. Well, honestly, even even a tethered robot with a, a camera on it that, you know, if, if radio signal travel is your problem, then just tether the damn thing, right? As long as it's mm -hmm. the, the tether is not going to get caught on anything. And I seem to have a picture in my head. It's either that or I've imagined it so many times it's real now. But I've got a picture in my head of seeing a, a wheeled little car style robot with cameras and lights on it going up like a narrow shaft in a pyramid. And mm -hmm. I just, I don't know if that's real or not, but I'm sure, I'm sure somebody's tried it and it, you don't need radio. Like I said, if, if it's, if it's something that you can get through and that totally leads to the thing that when I was researching for this section, my God, I came across this thing. You guys have got to check out the show notes um, because <laughs> the Stanford, I'm just, I hope you watch these videos, Paul. Um, oh yeah. But oh, the, yeah. they the make Stanford, me feel a little um, odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Check out the video. <laughs> but there's one article that says, uh, the title is Robots Help Archaeologists to Explore Pre-Incan Ruins in Peru. And that led me to, because uh, they had a link in there, Vine Robots. And I and I included a link to the vinerobots.org page in, my, uh, in, in the show notes for this episode. So what this is, it's a, it's a stationary device that you just set on the ground. And it... I, I don't know how to explain this other than like a sausage casing or a sock turned inside yeah. out. Like mm -hmm. if, if your sock is turned inside out and you put your hand in it and you push it out, you're like, if you pull your socks off and they're inside out, you push it out as your hand goes through the middle of the sock, the rest at the end of the sock kind of comes out. Right. So, and, it, and then it forms a sock. Well, imagine that for two, 300 feet and plastic. And this plastic thing has a camera on the end of it that's pushing along with it as it's basically inflating. I don't know if that's even the right word because they can put fluids and stuff in there too. But basically, it's being fed material from the inside and developing sort of from the inside out. Like it looks like an intestine or something like that. It's just, it's really, really strange looking. But they're able to take this thing into really narrow passageways. They're able to, they said even from a search and rescue standpoint, they're able to like deliver things like water and stuff through that tube basically and air for somebody who is trapped in a, in a confined space. But uh, these researchers at Stanford used it to uh, basically explore these uh, spaces that way they would normally have to excavate and and essentially destroy because that's what excavation is these Incan uh, spaces in Peru and it's just 
it's just amazing what this thing can do and the applications that it has. I was totally floored by it. No, it's really cool. And they, um, and again, this is where this intersects with Maker is that they give you instructions for how to build one yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they're not complicated. Uh, you know, and the a basic one that uh, that you know extends out however many feet is pretty easy to make. You know, so you could mm -hmm. use that for checking like what things are like in a crawl space. Um, yeah. you know, home applications would be really obvious, like what's inside a wall, uh, maybe inside a wall would be useful for historic archeology, span but then they also show like how you can make it turn a corner and the examples they give you for your own use for your own making it home involve putting pieces of tape on it so that one end, you know, one edge of the, this tube, uh, mm -hmm. is effectively a little shorter than another edge and you can make it uh. bend as it inflates. But they also had examples and I don't know how they do this. I wish I uh, I had the time to read some of their uh, some of their scholarly articles to find out what the mechanism is for this, but they have examples where they show it snaking around, yeah, and basically under their control. You know, go left here, go right there, go up here, down there, around yeah. this thing, through that hole, which. I think they're targeting search and rescue. They're targeting uh, medical applications, but that would be something great in any of the examples that we've used for going into an archaeological site without destroying anything, going down that little hole to see. Uh, oh, yeah. So in Petra, mm -hmm. we found uh, under the, the temple, there was a really big sewage canal, basically. And Petra, if you know anything about it, they're really obsessed with water control. And so- yeah. It was surprising to find this right underneath this big temple, but also not surprising because they have every inch of, of uh, land there has mm -hmm. some effect on you know how the water is collected and distributed. So they did GPR at the time, and this is in the mid-90s, uh, in order to try to figure out what the uh, the drainage system was like under the temple. And we had some discussion of, uh, of using robots to explore, but that never came nice. to fruition. But this vine would be perfect for that. You just plop down in the middle of the temple, put the uh, the nose of the vine robot down into the uh, into the hole that we found in the uh, in the floor of the temple, and then you know with the camera on the end, let it go explore, see how far it goes. Where does this go? Is there a cistern under there? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But with that, we'd be able to find out pretty easily. Yeah, and it makes me think too that I mean the the, the just on the demo videos from Vine, uh, it looked like. Scale wasn't really in there in some of those, but it looked like it was about probably an inch and a half in diameter on the average. This tube that would that would mm -hmm. be sticking out maybe two inches, um, but I think it was more closer between an inch and two inches. And it made me think. I mean, honestly, couldn't you just make one that was just a few millimeters across? To be honest, I mean, if you wanted would, a camera in there, that might be a problem. But I don't know. Uh, maybe not with the cameras that they have for you know yeah. arthroscopic surgery. Sure. Yeah. So. Uh, I don't know. Um, and the camera and everything, I, you just got to see this video because the material, the camera, and if they're delivering anything, all of that is inside of this tube as it's being created and they're just feeding it all out. And you're right. The one thing that I really wish I knew more about was how they make it turn at will. And the only thing I can honestly think of is it's in the camera mechanism. Uh, it's some sort of cable system that they can somehow guide and control and steer like you're snaking a drain almost you know what i mean like something along mm -hmm. those lines where you can control that that mechanism and it controls the direction the tube is going but honestly i have no idea so that's pretty neat um again check out the show notes because that's some really cool stuff that they're doing over at stanford and with those vine robots
when when I think robots in archaeology, honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is a classic example of underwater robots, sub uh, autonomous vehicles that you know either explore the bottom on their own or are you know floating through the air doing like side scanning sonar and stuff like that, um, different things. But that always that also makes sense. We've had those for decades, to be honest, because people have been curious about what's under the ocean, and it's a very inhospitable place for humans. <laughs> so <laughs> to say you the know, least. Exactly. Now, a lot of historically, a lot of the spaces that we're talking about, like you're talking about Petra, you know, in down in Peru and other places like that, we've just we've just dug it up. You know, we just gone through the work and spent 20 field seasons out there with students and just dug it up. And I think as stuff like this Vine Robots gets going, that's actually going to start probably happening less and less. I mean, unless you're just digging in dense ground, that's one thing. But if you're dealing with structures and and potential spaces, then this seems to be the best way to at least start and maybe guide your excavation in a more fruitful way. You know, if, if you're just looking at empty chambers with no writing and nothing else that you can glean from that data, other than the fact that it's a chamber or a passageway or something like that, then maybe we just leave it and then look at other spaces that might have some other potential data sources inside of it so we can learn more about it, which is the whole entire point of excavation to begin with. Yeah. I mean, it definitely whether it's a vine type robot uh, or some other kind of autonomous or tethered vehicle, uh, mm -hmm. the fact that they're now easy enough and cheap enough to make, I think really opens up the doors for some non-destructive exploration, the same way that we use magnetometry or GPR uh, to plan where we're going to excavate. Use this, like you were saying, to, to pre-assess something, yeah. maybe get some primary data on it, but at least, at the very least, easily be able to explore some things that you didn't, you weren't able to explore before without doing a full excavation with all the destruction that that involves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. So the last thing I want to mention on this from the research I did is the last link in this section, and it's labeled, Archaeology Robots Will Explore Where No Human Can. And it's incredibly <laughs> poorly named because... When I when I looked at this, I was like, okay, it's going to be another similar thing to the to the Vine robots or you know or, or whatever, and uh, it's very much not. Uh, so you got to click on this, and because one of the things they talk about in here was that you know archaeologists don't understand exactly how how things are made, right? In in a lot of cases, like stone tools and stuff like that. And so one of the things that was actually discussed in here, and and I looked at this and I actually clicked a few links and and dove a little deeper on it was a robotic arm that was actually built for another purpose was used to simulate useware on a, on a projectile point. And I, they did like a thousand strokes or something like that on a, on a piece mm. of fabric all in the same way. And the researcher that did it, he's like, you know, I know humans would normally do it this way, but we have to look at stuff in a, in a controlled environment and then look at variations on that basically is what he was saying. And what he means by that is if you're trying to do useware uh, analysis on something and see how something wears when you're, when you're scraping it or cutting with it or doing something like that, you know, a stone tool, it helps to do all your strokes in exactly the same way. So you can get kind of a baseline of what that's going to look like. And then you can see the variation when you put the human element in, into it. But the, there's no good way to get a baseline of what a thousand use wear strokes of, you know, tan, you know, scraping a hide or something like that is going to look like with human hands. There's just no way to get a uniform example of what that's going to look like on a baseline. So they use this robotic arm to basically simulate and do the same thing. And I thought that was an incredibly uh, insightful way to use a piece of technology like that, that basically already exists. They just had to 
modify the end to hold a stone tool, basically. Yeah, that basically exists. I know I've said it a few times now, but that that to me is where this is all exciting. You know, taking something that already exists that somebody de- developed for an entirely different purpose and yeah. uh, <laughs> seeing what you can do with it. Does it have a good yeah. ar- archaeological uh, use? Um, I would not have thought of using a mechanical arm for that, but yeah. I'm glad somebody did. <laughs> I know, right? So, all right. Well, there's a lot of cool things in this space. Type in robots and archaeology in, in Google and you'll have a, a fun time at it. Uh, there's a lot of really good things being written and a lot of cool, a lot of people doing really out of the box thinking on this stuff, which is exactly what we need. Some of it might fail. And I hope they write about that, too, because we have to know where not to go. We have to know what directions not to take and, and in addition to the directions to take. So both of those are, are equally important. So. All right. Well, we are going to go on to segment three and see what Paul means by art, experimentation, and whimsy. Back in a minute. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, welcome back to the Architect Podcast, episode number 163. Today we're talking about maker culture and whether and how and in what ways it impacts archaeology. And as Chris said, I put down a whole bunch of different ideas and he uh, he kind of categorized them a little bit here. And he lumped these ones together as art, experimentation, and whimsy. And what I was thinking when I first put that down, when I first put those words down was at the time, 2017, when I wrote this card up, makerspaces were popping up all over the place. And they tended to attract people that were both engineering-minded and programming minded and technically minded, but also very artistic, right? So there were a lot of things that were created in these maker spaces that or around them or by people who are starting them that didn't necessarily even have a functional purpose, but they were exploring what you could do with different things. And some of them were just, you know, exciting to see on their own right. But then other things you could stop and think kind of like that mechanical arm that you were mentioning. Oh wait. I could use this in a totally different way that might be useful for something that I, else that I want to do. And so, you know, maker spaces, uh, there's one, there's Danbury hacker space a few miles away from where I am in Danbury, Connecticut. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Philadelphia, one of my old friends, Evan Malone, uh, founded uh, Next Fab Studio. Uh, nice. Oh, actually, uh, he, his partner is Joe Weber, who is of my cohort in grad school, the only other person with the same uh, advisor that year as me. (laughs) And uh, so she worked in the Middle East. He used to go there every now and then with her to do things like fly kites to take pictures. And I think he built some robots. Anyhow, he's an engineering whiz himself. Is is the Reno Collective where you've worked so much, is that also a makerspace or is that more of a co-working space? It's primarily a co-working space, but there are a handful of things. They've tried to create a maker space within there for Reno Collective members. Mm-hmm. But they've only got a couple things. I mean, it's a good start. They only have a few things though, but it's um, 
it's it's pretty cool. Yeah, so I, it's hard for me to, to actually grasp exactly, but I love it. Uh, is the, <laughs> this intersection between like engineering and computer science and such, which if you do these things, you realize that they're actually highly creative processes, right? Mm-hmm. But it's only been in the last few years that the people have been really bridging that gap effortlessly. That 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 this you know this notion of the stuffy engineer and the totally flighty artist as being two completely incompatible personality types is, is kind of eroding. You know, a lot of the the better engineers I know, uh, certainly a lot of the better con- computer programmers I know are mm-hmm. you know flighty artists, <laughs> and yeah. uh, and a lot of the flighty artists I know spend a lot of time building robots and other things that fit into the the whole maker world. And so I just wanted to, you know, for no particular aim here, I was just like, how do these things enable us as archaeologists, these these tools, these techniques, these maker spaces, whatever, how do they enable us to actually explore what might be possible? Right outside of academia, outside yeah. of uh, of contract archaeology, but in ways that are going to go right back into it. Right, and so you know, it's, it's like just odd ideas. I've I've been seeing. I see on um, online, like on Instagram and Twitter, there are a number of archaeologists that do things like they take photogrammetry of. Um, well, there's one that does hill forts, and then he, for no real research purpose, he'll post these pictures. There were these fly arounds of the, and they're beautiful and people comment on them because aesthetically it's really pleasing. And I think that that's a really kind of cool way to, uh, to make archaeology accessible to people. Yeah. Right. To just appeal to their sense of beauty, strangeness, innovation, whatever. Uh, Again, I don't even know where I'm going with this idea other than I feel like there's something there that, that will allow us to play, to be a little more playful about what we do. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that is the real takeaway from a lot of what we've been able to talk about is the people that are doing these things are in turn talking about it, right? They're not just writing a paper. Mm -hmm. They are putting out, you know, YouTube videos. They have Instagram, you know, all kinds of stuff like your friend with the Hill Forts and then the virtual curation laboratory we talked about in segment one. Mm -hmm. They are putting this stuff out in a way that is accessible to anyone. And it's just a it's a, it's a really great way to share the science that you're doing. And not only that, but get other people excited about it and make them think that, hey, this might be something that I can do or that I should look into for my research project or for my CRM project or whatever I'm doing. You know, can this be a thing? I think that's how drones got to where they're at, right? Not only that, but they came yeah. way down in price. But mm-hmm. people were just really talking about them and, and, you know, promoting them. And then they started coming down in price at the same time. But that's all hand in hand, right? The more people that start using it, the more companies that are get into that space. And the more competition there is and competition drives prices down. So it's just it's better for everybody to share that information, share what you're doing and, you know, just just get it out there. So not to mention the public archaeology aspect of the whole thing. You know, that's just good, too. So, yeah. Anyway. Now, you know, one of the other things that I put on one of those Trello cards was a uh, was a discussion of of small computers and such and whether they're going to be used in the field much. I don't even know that I have enough to flesh out a full episode on that, but I'm going to bring it up mm-hmm. now. Uh, and I'm bringing it up because uh, in case you hadn't guessed by the way I talk about these things that interest me, um, I, I like tinkering and 
programming and designing and inventing. And I'm not good at any of them, but I like it nonetheless. <laughs> and so on my desk, right in front of me, as we speak, I've got two different things here. I've got, well, a whole lot in a little box right next to me. But on the desk, I've got a Raspberry Pi that uh, I'm experimenting <laughs> with uh, as being a kind of field computer. Uh, very uh -huh. low power. I've mentioned before a, a programming project I've been working on for Total Stations. This is going to be the platform for it. I have one working and I've just been going through different uh, prototypes. And, you know, Raspberry Pi is probably the biggest of these uh, SBCs, these uh, single board computers. Uh, there are other mm -hmm. ones, Beagle Boards. Everybody seems to be putting one out. Orange Pi. I think I have an Orange Pi down in a box here. Eric Olson, I gave him one of my old, uh, he's been on our on our podcast a couple of times. I gave him one of my old Raspberry Pis. Nice. Uh, I seem to accumulate these. But I always have this feeling like they're going to be useful in the field. I mean, one of the ideas I've got is that it'd be wonderful when things settle down in Yemen a bit and I've got a little more contract archaeology work under my belt and have a better sense of the, the public duty aspect of that. To take a bunch of Raspberry Pis, uh, go back to Seyun, Yemen, and talk to the folks I know at the museum there to see if we can set up like a class with local kids to learn some programming and also infuse that with some history and archaeology in their local area. Yeah. You know, maybe some database work. You know how much I love databases and let them yeah. keep these things afterwards. And then the other one, and this I think really might have a lot of uses. Uh, I've got a microcontroller, a Raspberry Pi Pico. And it's basically, uh, you've probably heard of Arduinos. There's a whole bunch mm -hmm. of different ones, uh, Teensies and so on. And these are extremely low power. They're not even full computers like the uh, Raspberry Pis are. They're more, you know, sensors that you can program, you know, so you yeah. get this little four or $5 board, get some power on it, and then put a different kinds of environment sensors, movement sensors, cameras, data loggers, whatever. Uh, so I'm experimenting with this one. I would just, I just want a temperature sensor to build. Now I could go out and buy one for less than it's going to take for me to put this together, but this one is going to be just exactly how I want. <laughs> built by me and you know in a case that i'm going to 3d print and at the end i'll say hey i made that nice <laughs> nice i've thought of once i got that project under my belt i might make a whole bunch of these um for my wife to log light in different parts of our backyard oh. for her garden right see yeah you know through the course of the day through the course of uh, of a whole growing season you know what parts of the yard get more light than others and what times of the yeah. day and does that affect then how we do but i'm thinking these sorts of things because they're so accessible now would be very useful for monitoring environmental data uh, on a site uh, if you have a site that might be prone to looting you have a camera mm -hmm. hooked up to to one what else uh yeah. For, yeah, keeping track of uh, the state of uh, historic structures, right? If right. you have something that you think is settling, you know, some of these on sensors that you would then be able to check where they are in relation to each other, they, they use such little battery power. You, you put them on a long lasting battery and just set them up in certain places and check on them <laughs> every couple of months and <laughs> you pull the logs from them to find out what's moved. Yeah, for sure. Well, that is a lot. And, and, oh, yeah. You know, I'm not into hardly any of that stuff right now, which I really am sad about. I feel like my current situation prevents me from even getting into it a little bit right now, too, because I mean, you need some parts, you got to store some stuff, but, but not really mm -hmm. then, right? Because if you just, if you just pick one thing like Raspberry Pi to, to get one, 
learn how to program it, learn how to hook other stuff to it and and use it. I think that would be really fun. And it's not just a fun thing to do, but also as you're experimenting and playing with it, like you said, you start to realize, well, what else could I do with this? What else could I attach to this thing? I, I was thinking in the robot section, man, it's come down to, you know, for probably less than a hundred bucks, you could buy all the parts and the, the little electric motors and all the stuff to build yourself a little four-wheeled, probably, you know, robot. And even if it's not something that can be controlled wirelessly through radio signals, but even that is probably super cheap these days, you could build yourself a little thing that could go somewhere and, and do some stuff. And you just learn through doing that. And I, I wish more... Well, definitely university programs, but companies as well would allow a little bit more time in the schedule for that kind of creativity. It seems like Mm. it's always just go, 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 go. And there's never a chance to really step back and say, where can we push the limits in this area? Where can we push the limits in that area? You know, and, and what are the possibilities? And just have a have an afternoon of, you know creative, there's no wrong suggestion type of discussion and, you know, trying things out. I think, man, that would be so awesome. But I don't know, companies never have the, the t- they seem to never have the time for that. But I feel like if they made the time for that kind of thing, that would be incredibly beneficial later on. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the uh, nice things at the school was that yeah. we were allowed that space to experiment with things that would maybe help the school. Mm-hmm. The problem was we were so busy, <laughs> you know, keeping everything <laughs> running that we didn't actually have yeah. that time. So, so I have this, this, uh, stored up enthusiasm for playing with things and tinkering. And, uh, now that I'm unemployed, I actually have a little bit of time that I've been able to, to get into these again. It, it's, <laughs> it's fun. You know? So I said, yeah. I'm unemployed. It's going to, at some point it's going to hit the wall, but until yeah. then I'm going to learn a little bit and I'm going to build a little bit and it's going to be a lot of fun. One last idea. I mean, we've kind of circled around this a bit, definitely with the uh, the mechanical arm. Applications for experimental archaeology. I'm wondering, like, is there a kind of recipe for this? Because there's so many different, you know, experimental archaeology is a, is a well-known and well-respected part of our field. And people have been doing it in mm-hmm. various methods for quite a while. Um, who over on the, um, on the Life in Ruins podcast was doing a lot of... Uh, yeah. As, shooting arrows as David, into uh, yeah. <laughs> into carcasses too. David on the Ethnosynology channel that he's got on Instagram and TikTok and stuff, he's got some great videos and, and YouTube about uh, doing some stuff like that. He was firing a bow and arrow from a moving truck at Targets in one of his videos. Oh my goodness. That was impressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, check that so, out. Uh, you know, a few years back, I got into home brewing because apparently I need to have every hobby under the sun. <laughs> But I got into it specifically because uh, beer is so important to uh, ancient Mesopotamia. Yeah. And there's the whole debate, which came first, beer or bread and whatnot. And I was like, you know, not not only do I drink enough beer, but I like it. And the the thought of the process of it, you know, this kind of weird chemistry, biology, something happening was really exciting. So I got into it just to find out what the process was and, uh, you know. I'm no good at it, obviously, because I try too many things. I'm no good at any of them. <laughs> but then I was thinking about that. I was like, well, homebrewing, because a lot of the same sort of people who are attracted to the makerspaces and whatnot are also, you know, on the, all, all the same homebrew forum. And, uh, and it circles right back around. There are Raspberry yeah. Pi monitors and uh, computers that you can do to monitor and and keep track of your your brew process, or actually some mm-hmm. of them fully control it from grinding all the way through to uh, to actually brewing the beer. Yeah. I, I think what you're getting at here, and when you mentioned applications for experimental archaeology and, and all this stuff, and 
And, and like I mentioned earlier, try something. And if you fail at it, that's okay. You still learn something in the process, right? Because what mm-hmm. we're doing, you know, the applications for experimental archaeology are all the other things you can possibly think of, right? Because we're trying yeah. to, like, maybe you're you're tinkering around and you see something about, uh, you see something on Discovery Channel about a mechanical arm that can do this. And you're like, hey, wait a minute, I'm trying to replicate useware analysis on stone tools. Could I use that arm to do that? It's it's about staying aware, looking at other technologies, keeping your eyes open and, and trying other stuff and figuring out what it's going to be. I think the VR space obviously is going to blow our experimental archaeology up if we can ever get into you know, really kind of tactile, haptic feedback, that kind of thing. We're going to be able to do whatever mm-hmm. we want, basically. Stuff that is completely unrealistic to do today, like throw a spear into a woolly mammoth. Like, how does that work? You know, let's get the dimensions down and 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 see how many people it takes to take this thing down. Because we can't do that right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, we could try on an elephant, but we'd probably all go to jail. So it's not going to work. But stuff like that is is unreplicatable in, in real space. And so we're going to need VR space to do stuff like that. Uh, and I'm sure some of that's being modeled in computers, which is basically VR. But still, you know, I think it comes down to listening to shows like this, not to toot our own horn, but you know, we covered a lot of different things in this episode and that's the whole point. There's a lot of cool things going on out there and we only scratched the surface. I mean, we didn't really get into it. We were high level on this stuff, but there's people really getting into the weeds on these things and you really just need to keep your eyes open on that stuff. So that's my takeaway. No, I like that takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm jazzed. I'm going to get back to uh, my programming projects right as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Well, hey, feel free to write us, uh, Chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com, Paul at lugal.com. Our, our contact info is in the show notes. And hit us up on the socials if you want to. Let us know what you're doing. And, you know, maybe we'll even bring you on for an episode if you've got a, a project that you're in the middle of or um, or you did something and it failed and didn't work. We want to hear about that, too. Come on and tell us what your what your methodology was. And so other others can maybe go down a slightly different path, go down a completely different path. Who knows? Uh, it, it would be awesome to, to hear about all those experiences. So, again, hit us up and... Yeah, listen to our back episodes because we talk about a lot of this stuff in depth on other episodes, especially drones. There's go one last drink for you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks everybody and we will see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Architect podcast. Links to items mentioned on the show are in the show notes at www.arcpodnet.com/archaeotech. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com and paul at lugal.com. Support the show by becoming a member at arcpodnet.com slash members. The music is a song called Off-Road and is license-free from Apple. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. 
LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. From 